Ultra. Oh, hello there. I'm Melinda Catherine Gross. And I'm Michael Nixon. And we like to talk about murder. Well, you like to talk about murder, fictional murder, a <laughs> lot, uh, whether anybody wants you to or not. That's right. And Michael doesn't talk about murder nearly enough. So I would like to invite you all to join us as we explore the material of our favorite monster. Hannibal Lecter. Yes. Each week we will be discussing and dissecting the film and TV appearances of Thomas Harris's infamous serial killer, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Mostly, I'm going to try to get Michael to eat people. I won't. You will. I might, but there's only one way to find out. Tune in to Having a Friend for Dinner, available on DuelingGenre.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, bon appetit. Ooh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're talking about Dee Dee and Sexton from the comic book Death, The High Cost of Living. And joining the discussion is returning guest Mav from the Vox Popcast. Welcome back, Mav. Hey, how's it going? Very glad to have you on. Now, Mav, Death, The High Cost of Living is something that I've always thought is one of the best named comics I've ever heard of, but I had actually <laughs> never read until like a week ago in preparation for this, this podcast. I love this book. I, yeah. <laughs> one of my, this was a recommendation one of my favorite his, of his stories. Yeah. One of my favorite of Neil Gaiman's stories. Um, yes. In fact, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, this is heresy. I hope they don't take like my comic book cred from me. I'm not a big Sandman fan. I enjoy it for what it is, but like, it's like, eh, it's okay. It's kind of long. <laughs> I yeah. love this book. <laughs> right. So uh, for anyone who is not familiar, Death, The High Cost of Living was written by Neil Gaiman with art by Chris Bacalo and Mark Buckingham. And it tells a story of death as an eternal embodiment of death, taking her one day a century to live as a human. And it is, as you just noted, a spinoff from a, a very uh, popular and long-running series called Sandman that Neil Gaiman wrote um, all the issues of in the, what well, started in the late 80s and went to the uh, mid-90s, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it goes just about 10 years. I'd have to look the exact right. dates, but not quite, I think. So I remember... Uh, like when Sandman was first starting and becoming a, a popular thing, I was definitely like too young for it because it was the vertical line. It was for mature readers. And that would have been when I was, you know, seven to, <laughs> you know, early, early teens. Um, but I saw like references to it in the old Wizard magazine, which is an old comic book fan magazine. And oh, wow. um, yeah. lots, lots of praise for Sandman and also lots of praise for Death, the High Cost of Living. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, like I said, I, I'd always kind of heard of, and it was on my to get to list basically since then. I just never got to it till this week. And similarly, Sandman, I've read several individual issues, but I've not read the whole, I think it's a 75 issue story. Is that right? Really? Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I, I want to say 70, it's 75, I think. That's, I was just looking yeah. it up while you were talking. Yeah, so I've read like here and there, and they've put out a couple like collections of like the best of Sandman, and I, I think I read a couple of those, um, but I've never gone and read the whole thing. Some of that being access, uh, some of just time. Um, but I really enjoyed that you asked us to do this comic book because I, I very much <laughs> liked reading Death, the High Cost of Living. So that's how I mm -hmm. came to it. Do you remember when you first read this miniseries? 
Yes, when it came out, 1993. <laughs> um, right, and so right, here's, right yeah. from day one. <laughs> yeah, well, so I was, I've been aware of Sandman. I'm a little older than you are. And um, when Sandman first, Sandman started publication in 89, I was just looking it up. Um, I worked at a comic book store in 1990. So I was, you know, you know, which prime job for a comic book geek, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. oh, you know, in high school, I had a job in a comic book store. Um, I had this very w- weird place. I had a job in a comic book store slash butcher shop. <laughs> um, oh, the local but- <laughs> yes, yes. The local butcher in my hometown um, inherited the shop from his father who inherited it from his grandfather. And uh, when Neil uh, took over the shop, he decided you know, he was you know, he'd been raised to be a butcher um by you know my father and his father before him or whatever and but he was also a comic book geek so when he took over the shop he opened a comic book store in inside of it and i'm from a little town outside of cleveland that's where i went to buy my comics and when i got to be about 15 i went to work in the store for a while so so that is the most unique Yes. comic book store location i've heard <laughs> yes and and it was you know like we'd have people in for signings um that's how i met ron friends ron friends came in for a signing it's like hey we would like you to sign some books and would you like a sandwich you know <laughs> that sort of thing did happen <laughs> um but sandman was being published while i worked there and i read it i had i knew a lot of people who were you know this was 89 90 this is you know the time of goth <laughs> goth was happening <laughs> so sandman was very big with a certain with a certain crowd, um, many of whom were my friends. And I read it and I was like, this is okay, not really my scene, but I liked the death character. And when the high cost of living was, by the time death, the high cost of living was solicited, I was in college. So I, I'd moved. But the um, back in Previews Magazine, if you're a comic fan, you're aware of Previews Magazine, um, they solicited it and they talked about it and they're like, this is a spinoff of the Sandman series. Focusing on death, they said that, and the day she takes off. And I was like, I'm intrigued. This I want to read, definitely. And I was behind on Sandman at that point. It didn't matter. I read it. I loved it. I've loved it since the um, since the day it came out. It's only, in its original run, it's only three issues. You mostly buy it as a trade paperback today. But yeah. ev- all three issues, stellar. And it's the one that I always recommend to people when they want to get into that world. Because my problem with Sand, I've never taught Sandman in a college class because I feel like in order to teach Sandman, you'd essentially have to do the entire thing. And it's kind of unwieldy. It's one very, very long story. This book, you don't need any prior knowledge. You can just jump into this. Everything that you need to know is spelled out for you. There are some details that we can talk about later that do sort of tie into the to the mythos at large, but you don't need to know the mythology of the rest of the series in order to enjoy this. It makes, it's the one part of Sandman that I feel like is standalone. Yes. Uh, which made it very, uh, easily digestible for me. Cause, uh, I, I think one reason I hadn't read death, the high cost of living is I knew it was part of the Sandman series or it was related to the Sandman series and I had read all of Sandman. I was like, do I need mm-hmm. to? Turns out I didn't, like you said, nope. it's, uh, yeah, matters. I just it up and read it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and and I, like there's a few characters who have like some references that make me think, OK, that's going to tie back into something else. But for this story, it really didn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, some trivia that I had and then Mav, you had some trivia. So I'll turn it over to you after I run through some stuff. This is one mm-hmm. of those texts that is an eternal film development. Um, there, It seems like there's quite a few of those where you like you just keep reading updates. and You're like, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> yes. Um, 
the most traction that a film adaptation had was about a decade ago when Neil Gaiman was signed on to write and direct and Guillermo del Toro was set to produce. I am not surprised that it didn't happen because if you follow Guillermo del Toro, I love the man as a creative <laughs> individual, but he announces so many projects that never see the light of day. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure who, who does more between him and Kevin Smith, but yes. <laughs> both of them yeah. are very much i'm gonna make this and sure you are okay <laughs> yeah yeah um, right, and i think uh, that version has waned but i saw it still has an option this is um i know for a long time orson scott card said i'd love to see an ender's game adaptation but they just keep sending me checks every time <laughs> the, <laughs> the, 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 the rights wane uh so i actually like part of me is like fine that it hasn't happened yet, and I think it must be that way for uh, Neil Gaiman and Chris Bucklow <laughs> and Mark Buckingham's like okay, they, go ahead. And, and they finally made one, and it's not good, so you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So as we've said, the story is a side story that uses a, a character from Sandman, and that is a series that ran from eighty nine to ninety six, and um, that Sandman was written entirely by Neil Gaiman with a lot of collaborative artists during its run. Cause it had a long run and Sandman became the flagship title of a line of comics called Vertigo, which we've never really talked much about uh, really? Vertigo. Like in some, some of our other issues or our episodes, I know we've talked some about like just tangentially like comic book history. Vertigo is really important in the history yes. of the industry. Um, DC comics, owned Vertigo. It was a subset, but it was labeled for mature readers. Uh, it only sold directly to comic book stores. So everything that you saw at like spinner racks at grocery stores that had to have what was called the seal of approval from the Comics Code Authority, Vertigo was one of the first lines from a major publisher that said, we're not going to worry about the Comics Code Authority and mm-hmm. the seal of approval. Um, and Vertigo Comics was championed by the editor, Karen Berger, who is a really underrated figure in the history of the comic book industry. Um, I, I think there's some some figures that like at this point, like everyone knows Stan Lee now or Jack Kirby, like a, a like a pretty <laughs> casual fan of superheroes is aware of those, but you, I feel Karen Berger like deserves to be more, more well-known for how influential she is in the maturation of comic book storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, titles published by Vertigo that have been adapted to other mediums include V for Vendetta, Constantine, uh, history of, Vi- or is it Constantine? I can never remember which way they pronounce that. I one. say Constantine, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it, it's yeah. comics, you know, <laughs> Uh, history of violence i zombie lucifer and preacher there's probably a couple others i i just lost and then there are also a, a couple dozen others that like uh the comics have the eisner awards that won all the eisners the vertigo was just an award machine uh and mm-hmm. an intellectual property machine for for dc comics and for warner brothers and at, at its height of popularity um however dc announced that uh it's going to be shuttering uh, vertigo officially in uh next year but it's kind of been on the way out for about five years uh dc mm-hmm. has not been really giving it much attention for a little while They're now it's it into the their 90s and early 2000s. black label line yeah um but it's just not it, it's certainly not going to have the same impact i think that that vertigo had i don't think so um and Neil Gaiman's Sandman series, it told stories of the Endless, which were a group of seven metaphysical entities, including dream, destiny, death, desire, despair, delirium, and destruction. And uh, collections of the Sandman comic were part of a wave of graphic novels in the mid to late 80s and early 90s that received both critical acclaim and also made it onto the New York Times bestseller list. And in that group is also things like Watchmen and Mouse and The Dark Knight Returns. And um, Sandman, I don't think, had had the like industry shaking impact that uh mouse or watchman had or at least like a, like the larger impact but it's still like can kind of grouped in that renaissance of the late uh mid mid to late 80s mm-hmm. of the comic yes. book industry 
So Mav, you had some other uh, trivia that's a little more rooted inside the story since I haven't read the full Sandman story. Yeah. Um, so I had a few things that were just sort of things that I know about um, from studying um, as the comics, but mostly these are some of the connections to the greater Sandman series. And um, I'm going to do the non thing, the things that are not specific to this story first, which are the introduction to the graphic novel version of this was written by Tori Amos, who is a singer is in fact, my wife's favorite singer. Um, she is also a good friend of, of Neil's and Often people speculate that the character Delirium, which is uh, death and Sandman's name is Dream. Again, it doesn't matter for this story, but for anybody who is not steeped in the the mythology of Sandman, um, all of the endless, their names all start with D, um, but Dream goes by the nickname Sandman. Um, Dream and death have a a sister named Delirium, who people speculate is based on Tori Amos. Both Tori and Neil deny this. You know, and I guess they would know. However, being a Tori Amos fan, I get it. I, <laughs> I see why people say that. But she she writes the um she writes the introduction and sort of alludes to being death and being um delirium. So in that in that introduction, that's not gonna, that's not gonna shut down the the rumors. No, um, they're crazy. And the version I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I picked it up from uh from my university library, from the BYU library, and the version I have does have the Tori Amos introduction in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm a fan of Tori and of Neil. You can't trust anything. They're crazy. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> they might not even remember. I don't know. Um, let's see. Uh, the three issues originally appeared in 1993, and it's actually, you mentioned Vertigo. It's actually the first new Vertigo comic, which is to say Sandman was already being published before they launched the Vertigo line. And then they uh, so Sandman started as a DC comic and then there's like, we're going to do this thing yeah. called Vertigo. And then suddenly yeah, Sandman was just part of Vertigo. Death was the first series that had not come out already. That was under Vertigo. Another like Swamp Thing and Constantine both moved to Vertigo as well. But Death was the first new thing. Um, And it's a side story. Um, While Sandman was still ongoing. So when it fits into the rest of the timeline of Sandman, which jumps around to start with, and so isn't as linear as you might want it to be, is unclear. It does fit in somewhere because some of the characters in the book, some of the minor characters in the book, um, appear in an earlier story called A Game of You. Um, And maybe I'll talk about the specifics after you do the recap. But... um, they appear in a they appear in a story called a game of you which happens in sandman number 47 and then they later appear in a sequel series to this which is not as good but has an awesome title as well called death the time of your life so the so the, so those characters you know it does fit into the timeline but when specifically in the timeline it doesn't matter because what's neat about the story and the reason i think it's self-contained and works better than any other ones is Death isn't really in it. <laughs> you know, she's she yeah. well, I guess we'll talk about it. She's both the main character or she's not at all the main character. It doesn't really matter. You don't need to know anything because when in the Sandman timeline it happens is mostly irrelevant. So so those are the things that um that matter w- that I can tell you about without knowing who the characters right. are first. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> well, let's uh get to the 
full summary. But before we do that, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would also like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films or talk about trailers or uh, TV shows we've been watching or books we've been reading. And we also give monthly updates on our fantasy box office. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So now onto the full summary, which it was only a three-issue miniseries, so that was uh, kind of nice <laughs> to, to summarize. So we uh, open with a character named Sexton Furnival, who is a teenage boy with divorced parents, and he's in a kind of emotionally bad place. He's not so much um, like hating life as it seems like so bored with life, he doesn't know what he's supposed to do anymore. And he's writing a suicide note because of that. And his mother comes home and says she's in the mood to do some spring cleaning, so he better head out of the apartment. And he wanders aimlessly, and he ends up at the city dump, where he stands on top of a pile of trash, which shifts under him, and he falls. He's pinned under junk, and he calls for help. And then a teenage girl hears him and helps him get out of that situation. She says he can go get cleaned up at her place, and her name is Dee Dee. And she's dressed like a 1990s goth girl and is wearing an Ankh necklace. And I think one of the most, like, impactful parts of this and all of sandman is actually the the look of death Um, very much so i went to i went to college with 47 people dressed like that (laughs) i was saying and and you still see it at uh at conventions it's still a very cosplayed look so mav do you want to try and describe the look of death uh death or i guess well spoiler (laughs) um dd um slash death wears black jeans or you know black skinny skinny jeans a black camisole tank top and she's very pale she has jet black hair she has um i guess i guess you'd say heavy mascara with an egyptian inspired swirl under one eye and sometimes uh, an ock necklace and sometimes wears a top hat sometimes wears a leather jacket or or a shirt over it but she's always dressed in all black and it's odd because you know you're right people pay, people cosplay it but in 1993 there are people who just dress like this every day like i i wasn't joking <laughs> yeah. i went to class with dd and like 40 of them <laughs> like all the time it it was very definitely a look it is the it is the definitive goth look Yes, and sometimes with the cosplay, you even see like they they wear uh, makeup that really makes their skin look white, like pale white, like deathly white. Mm-hmm. Um, and other times it's just just natural skin color. But it's it is as you said, like a nineteen nineties goth girl look is um, this appearance. Um, however, she's not uh, like like her attitude, uh, at least in this miniseries, isn't all uh, like doom and gloom goth at all. Like it's still kind of she's very happy, and full of wonder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so we go uh, see Dee Dee's apartment, which is above a convenience store run by Mrs. Watson. Mrs. Watson tells Sexton that Dee Dee's family was recently killed in a car accident, and uh, despite that, Dee Dee seems happy, which surprises Sexton. In her part, in the in the apartment, Sexton says he's sorry about Dee Dee's family, and she says, "Well, they only exist to make her time here on Earth more plausible or believable, something like that." I can't remember the exact wording, uh, and she tells him straight up, "I'm death. I'm not. I'm not Dee Dee. Oh, comfortable. Yeah, I, I, I'm not Dee Dee. I'm death." And uh, she's completely calm and serious when she says this. And Sexton is confused and angry and scared by this turn in the conversation, which he very much did not see coming. So he uh, he kind of runs out of the apartment, but he's accosted by an old woman named Mad Hetty, who threatens to hurt Sexton if Dee Dee doesn't find her missing heart. And Dee Dee says she'll go do that. So now Sexton and Dee Dee go out into the city where Dee Dee is amazed by simple things like a hot dog. And a side note, Dee Dee never pays for anything. 
everyone just gives her things after she chats with him for minutes. She just has a nice, <laughs> pleasant conversation, and they say, it's on me. Uh, that's like the taxi ride, the hot dog, um, even even Mrs. Robinson letting her stay at the apartment still. <laughs> that's all uh, all being covered. So now they go to a party where Sexton sees Hazel. And Hazel used to work for Sexton's mom. And Hazel says, I can get you into this party uh, because my girlfriend is performing a song that night. And Sexton has a conversation while they're in the party. He has a conversation with an L.A. talent agent. And when the agent realizes that Sexton's dad is this bigwig entertainment attorney, he's suddenly interested in signing the girl who's performing. Because he says, well, if this kid whose dad is plugged into the entertainment scene likes this girl's music, if I can sign him, I might get an in with the dad. So this is actually a really big deal for Hazel's uh, girlfriend's uh, career. So Sexton at, at this party also has a conversation with a girl who sees that he's unhappy and she thinks he might, you know, uh, possibly be suicidal from the conversation she has. So she tells him a story about a friend who was abused in the worst way possible by her father and her father's friends. And the girl's father was the mayor of the town and one of his friends was a police chief. So this girl saw no other choice and went into the bathroom and sliced her arms open. And when the girl woke up in the hospital, she was still glad to be alive. So she's kind of telling Sexton, like, suicide is not going to be the right choice now the girl telling the story is wearing very long gloves that cover her arms but sexton is pretty oblivious to this he does not notice the clues about this story uh dd uh runs into theo who is a boy at sexton's school theo has been hired to find dd and he convinces her to come with him sexton follows them and they are taken into a basement where a mysterious blind man called aramite attacks theo and steals dd's onk he locks them all in the basement where Dee Dee tries to help Theo, but Theo dies from uh, the attack. And Dee Dee tells Sexton that every century, death lives as a human for one day. Uh, since they're locked in, they go digging around the junk in this basement that they're locked in, and Dee Dee finds a Russian nesting doll. Mad Hetty reads tea leaves and sees that Dee Dee and Sexton are in trouble, and with the help of Mrs. Robbins, they go and rescue them. Dee Dee and Sexton go out once more into the city. Dee Dee buys a silver onk from a street vendor for $10. She says she had $10.02 with her. And so she's spending money for the first time on the silver onk. She now tells Sexton, I've still got these two cents. They go to Central Park where Dee Dee stands on the edge of a fountain and falls in backwards. So she throws herself backwards into the fountain. And Sexton just kind of says, that's a bad idea. But then Dee Dee never comes up. Uh, her body gets pulled out of the fountain and she has died. And the Aramite comes and he's upset that he had no power over death even though he stole her onk and uh, he takes her two pennies and puts them on her eyes. And then he leaves and Sexton learns from Mrs. Robbins that Dee Dee was born with a bad heart and was always going to have a short life. And Sexton decides that he doesn't want to end his life right now. He kind of hopes he can meet death. Who's a, a happy teenage girl, but not yet. Mad Hetty finds the nesting doll that Dee Dee pulled out of the basement and she opens it to find a heart-shaped necklace inside. We also see Dee Dee sit up uh, and take pennies off of her eyes and speak to an unseen person and say and says that her one day on earth was worth it and because she met some nice people. The end. It's you do see quick, it. you, uh, yeah. summary. <laughs> yeah, you do see at the end that the unseen person appears from one panel and is a paler version of Dee Dee. It's death. <laughs> Oh, right. Okay. That's what that is. I guess I had. A, yeah, yes. it's, it's, okay. it's not very obvious because <laughs> they, they never appear in the same panel, but they're talking right. to each other. She's talking to herself. You do see their hands touching at one point. But yes, I thought yes. this was all just Dee Dee talking, actually. Mm -hmm. It's but ambiguous. No. But, but yes. I guess it is. It, it is all Dee Dee talking, but <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's talking to herself quite literally in this. Um, a little while ago, I actually can't remember which discussion it was, but it was what uh, we were talking about a story in which there was ambiguity at the end as to like what were you were you were supposed to believe. Oh, uh, you know what? It may be an episode that hasn't dropped yet. It's a monster uh, when a monster <laughs> calls. 
or monster calls, which <laughs> I, I think Mav with you, we talked about it with um, the, uh, the graphic novel we did. I kill giants. I where kill there's giants, stories yes. that sometimes leave ambiguity about whether the supernatural parts were real or in the character's head. And mm-hmm. this manages to kind of do both because yes. the character of Sexton can believe TD was just, just talking nonsense when she talked about being deaf. And she really was this girl whose family had died and she had a heart condition and she just died. But we as an audience uh, get the ambiguity removed uh, and know that this really was death. But I like that it kind of does both things. Um, If you know, I mean, it's one of those weird things. So if you've read the Sandman, I remember I said at the beginning, this is the one thing that I think stands apart from the rest of the Sandman series. If you've read it, you know from her first appearance who she is because death, the character had been around um, for 47 issues by this time. And she had made reference to the fact that she lives life as a mortal once every hundred years. It, it's come up before. So when she shows up, it's like, oh, it's death. Why does she have real Caucasian skin instead of chalk white skin? That's odd. You know, that that's like uh-huh. your initial thought. But if you don't know that, it doesn't matter. This, that's, what, that's what I love about this story. You can move in to this completely unknowing of anything about the endless mythology you can miss the fact because it's very subtle that they shake hands at the end. Um, she yeah. shakes hands with her and then the DD form dissolves. So did she die? Like what happened there exactly isn't super clear unless you know the rest of the mythology. So it did really happen in as much as stories ever happen, I guess. But it doesn't matter yeah. because Sexton doesn't know because Sexton's your point uh-huh. of view character. He's he's the main character, not DD. Very much so, mm-hmm. I think. Um, though Didi is oh yeah he's remarkable. the one that has yeah I, I would definitely want to dig into Didi, but he's the one that has a transformation like it, the story opens with his suicide note and it closes with him saying I don't want to die yet uh, you know that's the character that has um, an arc and a transformation whereas Didi, I mean okay she comes in as a teenage girl and leaves as literal death um, but <laughs> she, she's mostly there kind of um, in awe and wonder and like adding color to Sexton's life more than mm-hmm. Uh, you know, seeing a trans- having a personally transformative moment. And that's kind of par for the course for for um, for Gaiman's uh, Sandman stories. Uh, there is an overarching arc that goes throughout the entire series. That is the story of dream, the story of Sandman. And you can follow that journey. But each individual story, like there are a lot of side characters, each of whom have their own journey. In, ver- in various different stories and they're interrelated and they sort of gather together to make the story of Sandman of which this is actually part, even though he doesn't appear at all. Dream, the Sandman doesn't appear, doesn't appear in the story at all, but several of the characters in here do appear in other stuff. And that was the other trivia that I wanted to like sort of go through real quick. Um, obviously, yeah, Dee Dee, yeah, Dee Dee is obviously in in lots of stories as death she never appears again as dd but she is death throughout um throughout the sandman series and looks identical to dd except for instead of her skin being peach covered colored it's it's chalk white um all of the or i shouldn't say all most of the endless have chalk white skin <laughs> um there are two exceptions you don't care for the context of this episode <laughs> um and then you have mad hetty who appears um throughout the sandman series she's a minor character but she appears in sandman she appears in some other vertigo titles the dreaming she appears in hellblazers which is constantine's story um 
and I'll leave Foxglove for last. You have the Aramite who it's not clear if he appears elsewhere or not. This story, if you've read other vertical titles of the time, um, very much implies that he is a character named Mr. E, who at one point during the rest of the stories got shunted off into the future, like far, far, far into the future to the end of the universe and was told to walk back from the end of the universe. Sandman's weird. <laughs> um, well, this story through things the Aramite says implies that he's mis it's Mr. E or mystery, <laughs> but um, it, this implies that he's Mr. E. But other stuff that happened with Mr. E afterwards implied that the Aramite wasn't him. So maybe he's the Aramite and maybe he's not. And then Foxglove and Hazel, actually. Um, Foxglove, I mean, you did not mention, I don't think, in the... Um, I don't think I summary. said her name. I said her... Yeah, other than say Hazel's friend girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Hazel, uh, Foxglove is first... Her, her real name's Donna. And this is a, these are little details that you don't pick up from reading the story. Foxglove's real name is Donna. And the singer says, I'm going to sing a song. It's called Donna's Dream. Um, Dream being Sandman and Donna being herself. Um, she's Donna. She goes by the nickname Foxglove when she's performing. She's first mentioned um, early on, like issue six, um, only by only by name. She doesn't appear when her original girlfriend dies. Um, she mentions um, that she has a girlfriend named Donna or and, and that girlfriend's name was Judy. And the song that Donna or that Foxglove sings, the first song she sings is Donna's Dream is a song about my friend Judy who died. That's who they're referring to. Um, Foxglove later appears in issue number 32 which is the beginning of the a game of you arc and foxglove and hazel both appear they're a couple now and they have a little adventure with the endless where they go to the land of the dead um it's confusing and um during that story another of their friends dies who is um a transgender woman named wanda um and at the end of Foxglove's um, song, she says, I'm going to sing a song about another friend of mine who's also dead. It's called Tracks. That's about Wanda, who is one of the main characters from A Game of You. And then Foxglove and Hazel are the main characters of the sequel to this book, A Time of Death, A Time of Your Life. They're the main characters of that. So if you follow all, if you follow through Sandman into Death, the, the High Cost of Living and on to Death, the, high, the Time of Your Life, you actually get a full character arc for Foxglove, none of which exist in only one story. You have to like sort of follow her from one person's journey to the other because, you know, Gaiman's very complex. <laughs> you know, he he yeah. likes these weird interconnected things. And that's why I don't like telling people to just read just one of them because so like you can't follow the story of Foxglove unless you know all the weird mythology that goes through all of them. But Sexton, his journey is the one thing where it's like, look, Sexton appears in this book and he's done appearing at the end of this book. He never appeared before, never after that. And this is his complete journey. And then as a side note, also the character of Dee Dee may or may not appear in um, Neil Gaiman's American Gods. <laughs> um, a book yeah. which everybody loves, which I have never read because I'm a horrible geek and I need to fix that. <laughs> but um, but there is a character, yeah. <laughs> well, there's a character in, in in American Gods um called Baron Samidi. He's the Voodoo Lord of Death, and 
Um, at one point, they're in a bar, and the text says, Baron Samiti, the Voodoo Lord of Death, had taken over the body of a teenage goth girl from Chattanooga, possibly because she possessed her own top hat, which sat on her dark hair at a jaunty angle. And that's, yeah, that's a perfect description of who DD is. And people say, because uh, there's also, there's references to Delirium, one of the other endless in, in, in that book. There's references to the dream. Um, he doesn't own any of the characters DC does. So they're, they're vague hinted references. And people say that that's the hinted reference to her. So that's the appearances of all right. the other characters and the rest of his mythology. I know he's also done, like he loves to interconnect his work. So like um, in the ocean at the end of the lane, there's a witch character who is, if I'm remembering right, it's been a while, but I think it's the sister of a ghost of a witch that is in the graveyard book. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> like just the last names lined up if you catch it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he loves to do these, these like subtle interconnections. And I simultaneously very much enjoy when authors do this. So like uh, Stephen King does this Stephen and King Brandon Sanderson yeah. does this and in his fantasy where like everything's actually one part of one massive story. I also find that it can be exhausting to try and keep track of it and figure out if it matters or not at all. <laughs> well, I I like it here because it doesn't matter, right? Like it is fun when you can yeah. enjoy a story on another level and you can go there and you can pick it apart and analyze it. But one of the worst things about comic books, about you know the shared universe of Marvel or DC is trying to keep it all straight to, you know, if you're a super nerd who goes out, out and... Wolverine is doing all these appearances. Yeah. Like, how did Wolverine show up <laughs> right. in 18 comic books in the same month? <laughs> right. And like you can sort of you can sort of make it work if you really, really work hard sometimes. And then sometimes you just can't. Some stuff just falls apart. And it's maddening when you try to when you try to sort of fit it together and make it work. Um so there are some books that are um, there's a Marvel Comics just did a series uh, written and drawn by a friend of mine, Ed Piscor. They did a series called X-Men Grand Design, which goes through the entire history of the X-Men and retells it's amazing. It, it yes. is so good. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ed Piscor. So I didn't been, know. I've, it's I've, a friend of I've yours. Him, Tell him he did a yeah, great I've job. Him, yes, I've known him since he was. A, he's younger than I am. I've known him since he was a child. He's <laughs> a friend. Okay. He's a friend of mine. But he's um. but yeah, he, he went. I, uh, he, I literally he wrote all my it. dissertation. <laughs> Oh, tell him I literally wrote my dissertation on the X-Men and he did a fantastic job. I will pass that along. <laughs> Shout out to Eddie. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but yeah, um, so but he but he did that. And it's an amazing it's an amazing job where he went through and he, you know, there are contradictions in the X-Men because it was written by 50, 60 some writers over a course of 40 years and he retold it to make it work. But he changed things in order to make that happen. You know, he that was that was. He cheated, right? You know, because it doesn't really work. And so I, I find yeah. it fascinating when somebody like um, like Neil Gaiman can actually make it work. And he did make it work. The downside is I don't want to have to do homework in order to enjoy a story, right? Like I like being able yes. to notice it later. But um, and I like being, you know, as, a, as an academic, it's nice to be able to pour over these things and think, oh, what what does the intertextuality mean? You know, it can be all this is the kinds of discussions we have in dark rooms or on podcasts. But, you know, I don't really want to do that all the time. Sometimes I just want to sit down and read a nice story. And I love that I can sit down and I can just read the story. That's what I love about it. Yeah, it worked very successfully as a standalone, but also with just enough hints of strands that mm-hmm. I feel like could connect somewhere. But if they didn't, it wouldn't bother me. It, it, like if this was the only thing he'd written set in the world of Sandman, it would still be satisfying because it just gives you the idea that there's a grander universe out there. 
mm-hmm. I don't have to go out and read everything else to understand everything. It's just like, okay, the, these other side characters have lives outside of what I'm seeing right now. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the author has done the work to create those lives, even if he's not going to tell us everything right now. Well, one of my favorite characters in the book is, and you, and you you focused on her quite a bit. When Sexton goes to the party, and Hazel Hazel sends him to the party, and he meets this girl in long gloves who clearly has a life. She, I mean, you read it. She, her entire existence in the world of literature is on three pages of a comic book, and you know that she was bad. I mean, she was a, she had a bad life. She was abused and committed suicide, or tried to commit suicide and lived and now regrets it, and she's trying to help some other kid. She's got an entire lived-in life that there's a story out there for her, but it's not told anywhere. So she doesn't, as far as I know, she doesn't appear anywhere else in Sandman. Um, and if she did, I, I missed it. Yeah. But she feels yeah, and in this, so like organic. Said, I, I just looked. It's literally only two pages, actually. I just double-checked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like that passage, it was so powerful to read. Like, haunting in the worst way. Like, the, mm-hmm. the idea of, of what was going on. But, like, as she's telling the story, like, you're getting these layers that like you want to pick up Sexton and shake him and like pay attention to this girl because you are missing <laughs> yeah, <laughs> missing two, so much he has a two-page conversation with her and then she's mentioned again uh, in the last in the last yeah. issue she calls him yeah she she says uh-huh. she wants to see him again so it's implied that you know maybe Sexton's okay and he gets to go on a date with this girl that would be great you know this is like me fanficking it afterwards yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, that, that, um, ability to like breathe life into a character that's on page for like, you know, less than a dozen panels and (laughs) is going to be staying with me, like as a reader, like well after, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's something I'm always going to remember about this, this graphic novel is those few pages. And I think that's, it's a skill for a writer to use such economy of space and dialogue. Like that's not a ton of dialogue in a comic book page on that many panels, but he, Neil Gaiman and Chris Pacolo uh, created this fully fleshed out character. Mm-hmm. With no name. <laughs> she with she no has name. no name. As far as I know, she has no name. She's called she, the girl with the gloves the later the on. Gloves. I think yes. that's mm-hmm. the reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do also want to mention Chris Pacolo's art. Um, it was kind of weird to me to realize this was Chris Bocklo mm-hmm. <laughs> trying this. Uh, and I remember this isn't the first time I've had that experience because uh, he's had a very he's had a very long career in mm-hmm. Marvel Comics. But he shifts uh, towards a very exaggerated geometric style with mm-hmm. like heavy angles and huge swooping curves simultaneously, like very angular, but also very like I said, exaggerated curves. And it's just very different from any other artist to the point where like now I see anything probably from late nineties to today that Chris Bocklo has drawn. I look at it and I say, that's Chris Bocklo like immediately. Mm-hmm. I didn't do that with this one because it's a different style. And I remember there was a much, uh, a, a comic that would have been before this, like very early nineties. Um, I wasn't gonna say that. No, it was uh X-Men unlimited when they oh. did a quarterly comic. Mm-hmm. And I remember yes. picking up at some point it was in a trade paperback collection. And I read the first issue and I'm like, is this Jim Lee? And then I looked and it wasn't Jim Lee. It was Chris Bacolo, but he was doing a very Jim Lee style, which yes. was the style for a comic for superhero comics in the, in the early 90s. Like it makes perfect sense mm-hmm. to be doing that. But it was so close to Jim Lee. I thought it was Jim Lee 
And then this is like in between that Jim Lee style and what has become the Chris Bacalo style, which he is very a, unique and singular. Yeah, he has a it. very weird evolution as an artist where he starts, you know, he very much starts in the world of, you know, the 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 Jim Lee school of art, the the image creator school of art um, uh, that is Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and Todd McFarlane, the thin, thin lines. And, you know, that's where he starts early on his career. And he has every cross hatching. Yes. And he has such a great uh, maturation because, you know, so Lee's artwork and McFarlane, they were always talked about like, oh, this is the most realistic comic book art ever. It, it isn't really, but that, but that was the thought at the time. And he matures into, he sort of leaves some of that behind and he exaggerates to, towards a cartoony, what McLeod would say, a picture plane, you know, expressive kind of like art style that is in here and it's weird in here because you know so i remember him very much from like his work on generation x um uh, which is an yes, that's spin-off. what i remember him most from yes yeah and and he does he does that and and then later um he just he just finished up a couple of well, just it's been a couple of years but he just finished up a couple of runs on x-men recently on uncanny x-men and he moved into a much happier cartoony look but this he's got that cartooniness but it's a book about suicide and it's a book about the meaning of life and it's he's using cartooning and I I don't know how I don't know how to explain that word to your listeners any better than to say the cartoony style he's being a cartoonist a literal cartoonist and he's being expressive but instead of expressing joy he sort of expresses this this hopelessness with just this one glimmer of hope that is Didi the character of Didi. And I think his artwork makes this story as much as, as um, Gaiman's writing does. I am super impressed with their work and the storytelling that's happening from one panel to the next. And like you said, the expressiveness, like there is definitely, well, it's also the color. Who's the colorist on this? Uh, Got to give a shout out to, to that. Uh, Going to the Steve Olive and Ali, Ali optics is what it says. So it must be a group that did. I'm reading my digital coloring. copy. So you, so you can go faster than I can. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it does have this very somber feel, um, as you read through it. Uh, but like you said, there's this glimmer of hope, which comes in the form of Dee, Dee which is a perfect match for the goth girl that is kind of bubbly, actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, much more than you associate with the goth aesthetic, um, that she, she has on her exterior. Um, and it, like that, uh, there's kind of this muted understatedness to so much of this story that like also comes through with Sexton. Like we said, he's the one that has the transformation, but it's not like this grand epiphany that life is wonderful and worth living. And I'm going to find joy in every moment. His grand epiphany is I'm not ready to die yet. Yeah. I'm just not going to kill myself today. That's, that's the end of the story. It's like, I'm not going to kill myself today, which is a big move for him. Yes. Which, which is like a victory. Like, like if someone is suicidal and they make that choice, that is great. Mm -hmm. You know, that is, that is a victory for that day. But I think a lot of like anti-suicide stories, it's about like this grand alteration in how the worldview is going to be seen by this character Mm -hmm. and the story doesn't do it. And I think it's still powerful to see this, this little change. Uh, And that kind of, uh, again, this understatedness of the transformation definitely fits within the overall aesthetic of death, the high cost of living. I, I feel like he's going to be okay. That's what's great about the story. Like, it's not a world, it's not a world changing 
point of view. It's not like uh, this is not the moment in, in, in a different novel, in a different comic book. You might have had the moment where something happened and I realized that God existed. You know, you, you, I fell down or, on my uh, knees. George Bailey. Yeah. Right? <laughs> oh, and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's a wonderful, it's life. wonderful life. Yes. Clarence shows me what the world would be like without me, you know, and now I'm going to be a better person. And Sexton doesn't and, and really everything have is better. That. Life, yeah. you know, food tastes better. The world's you know, the colors are brighter. Everything, everything is better. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, so he does have it because he did meet a, you know, he met a higher being, but he doesn't believe it. You know, at the end, he he doesn't believe that she's deaf at any point. I, you know, my favorite line of the of the entire story is when she tells him that he's deaf. He says, first, there's no such thing as deaf. Second, death is a tall is uh, a is a tall, skinny man like a a skinny skeletal man like a um like a skeletal monk who has a penchant for playing chess with Scandinavians and has a scythe. Third, he doesn't exist either. <laughs> you know, he never buys into it. At the end of the story, the best he's willing to give her is, you know, it'd be nice if death really was Didi. That's that's it. It, it, it would be nice. But he doesn't yeah. believe it. He's essentially. <laughs> I'm going to use this as a, as a double meaning. He's agnostic as to whether or not she's death. You know, he's agnostic as to whether or not there is a is a higher power. It doesn't matter because what he's learned through this story is you know what? At my absolute lowest, I met a girl who knew that she had a limited time on Earth, um, even though he doesn't know it's one day. He knows it's one, supposed to be one day, but he believes it's because of her heart condition. She had a limited time on Earth. She changed my life and she made me she made me realize that life life is worth living for this one day. And that's what makes it special. And you feel like uh -huh. hey, you're right good moral to the story neil gaiman and, and that's kind yeah. of that's kind of where i'm at with it i was just like this is this is the nice little parable and i go oh yeah and it doesn't feel didactic it, it, it's an it's a nice little parable with a meaningful story that has much more of an ending than a lot of his stories do there's a you know there he doesn't use this much of a bow most most of the time but you, you read it and you go mm -hmm. yeah yeah okay beginning middle and end and i learned something and i feel good about myself in a book about death <laughs> and real quick just just referencing intertextuality uh sexton had kind of a deep pull for uh ingmar bergman 1957 film <laughs> for <laughs> death uh playing chess with scandinavians uh what's the name of that film i remember it from film school but um, i can't remember uh i'm gonna I'm, I'm, yeah you check the recesses of my mind it's it's also referenced in last the seventh hero. Seal. It's the seventh yeah, thank seal. You. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, and also an, another again intertextuality. The entire story is very, I'd say, loosely based on 1934 film Death Takes a Holiday. I think I got that year right mm -hmm. off the top of my which head, he, which also gets referenced. Yes, he says at one point, like I saw an old movie like this. Yeah, uh, and it, it's talking about that. This is another and movie called Meet Joe Black, which is also that story. <laughs> There's probably yeah, lots of movies. The, yeah, like the story. setup of uh, of death visiting Earth uh, as a human. Like Neil Gaiman didn't invite invent that by no. any means, um, but he tells a really good version of it <laughs> in this in this graphic novel. 1934. I nailed it. Yes, <laughs> I wasn't sure if I actually did that right. Yeah, but yeah, it's in. So uh, I should double check. Yeah, okay. Seven Seal is 1957. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. I, I did that one right too. <laughs> This, this is, is this is truly being a film nerd <laughs> like when you're just like oh yeah yeah i, I know that and i was and if i if i were trying if somebody had asked me what year it was 
I wouldn't have been able to do it. It's just because I wasn't trying. So my, that's how my brain works. I was, it just yeah. came up because I was, it was a natural conversation. <laughs> um, one thing that's interesting is part of this is probably because um, I was aware of like the idea of Vertigo as a mature title, you know, mature series from when I was a kid. I'm like, oh, well, I, I don't know what's in there. Um, like it's mature in the themes it deals with. So it talks about mm-hmm. sexual abuse. It talks about suicide. Um, it, it talks about death, uh, you know, it, so, so there's a lot of that, but it's not um, explicit in any depictions mm-hmm. of anything. Most of this is happening through conversation. And even there's one point that I kind of chuckled at where I'm like, okay, well, DC said this doesn't need the comics code authority seal, but uh, this, the, the 1990s street tough uh, says, get the funk out of here. F U N K. I think, yeah, I think there actually might be it. And I, and I've never actually gone through and counted. I feel like they actually do swear at some point. I think that when he when the street tough dies, and I'm forgetting his name, but I think, and I'm going to check. Yeah. Dee actually says the f word. I think. Oh, okay. I think, and I'm not, and I might be misremembering yeah. that. But it, but if so, it is extremely organic. This is not a mature reader's title. In that, hey, we're going to have boobs on every page. Hey, we're going to have it's just yeah. wearing up a storm. That's not what it's about. It's a mature reader's title in that it's a story for people who are mature. That that is yeah, very much not a child, not a children's story. But you could, re- you know, I not only could you read this at thirteen. If I were teaching a class of thirteen-year-olds, I might assign it because you know, in the hopes that maybe one of them might have a hard day one day from now, and and this might get them through it. You know, it, it is it is a good story that you can read with a strong moral. It's just you know, you, you guys recently did an episode on on Huck Finn, for instance. You know. There's some problematic language in Huck Finn, but that's what makes it problematic. It's not gratuitously evil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked a lot, I think, about Sexton. Should we dig in a little bit into Dee Dee? Um, now, I don't know this character outside, you know, as death in the Sandman universe. I only know this version mm-hmm. that we get in the in the three issues. What is it about Dee Dee that you think has made the character um, endure beyond the 90s goth phase? As like I said, something you still see in uh, in cosplay. There, there's still film companies that are trying to license this to do an adaptation. What is it about the character of Dee Dee that that pops? And see, that's what's interesting about. So, from I don't think she would have with just this book. And and one of the things that I think people love about her, people who aren't me, I love her for being Dee Dee. Dee Dee is my favorite version of Death, but she is somewhat distinct from Death the character who traditionally appears because the character who traditionally appears is very much all knowing. In fact, she's got the main character of Sandman is dream and dream is on a constant journey of discovery. Kind of, you know, he, yeah, he's, he's often trying to figure things out. Whereas death doesn't have that problem. Death is, you know, I was at the beginning of the end of the universe. I'll be there at the end to close the door. It's one of her favorite quotes is that when the universe ends, I will be the last one out the door and I'll lock, I'll, I'll turn out the lights and lock the door on my way out. <laughs> like that, that's one of the things that death likes to say. So she's very mystical and ethereal and all knowing like you expect death to be, but she's always also always happy. You know, she doesn't have a problem. She's not a skeletal monk. She doesn't have a problem with that. She's uh, there's a point to death that I think sort of worked for the goth movement of the early 90s where she's sort of she's sort of embracing the darkness and saying it's okay. It's you know, you can you can you can be a moody, immortal teenage girl and, you know, sort of 
not you can be a weirdo and it's okay to be a weirdo um and i think people really remember that death what i like about Didi, however is she doesn't have all that she knows she's deaf but she doesn't she doesn't have access to any of her powers she doesn't appear to be all-knowing they're on this journey to find mad hetty's heart death the character of of the sandman book would just know where it is Didi has to find it and as the book goes on, one of the subtle things, one of the subtle changes in Didi is you'll notice that as the book goes on, she becomes more and more mortal as that day. She, she's only got 24 hours on Earth. And as the day goes on, she sort of becomes less all knowing and more confused about stuff. She has a breakdown in the middle where she, you know, she yells at Sexton and has to apologize for it because she's becoming more and more human. Like nothing bothers her at the beginning. Um, and in, in fact, it's still a thing. You never pay for anything. She's like, everybody pays in the end. Sexton, everybody pays, you know, so there's a lot of that, but then she has these moments of, of clear humanity, some of which are negative where she gets mad at Sexton for, you know, for not respecting the dead um she she can yell and she can break down and then at the very very end the last thing that happens before she dies is she has um there's like an eloy eloy you know on the cross moment <laughs> she has a uh which is a christian illusion for your listeners um right before jesus dies in the bible he said he, he basically announces that he doesn't want to and she does that <laughs> she 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 does this this last moment of of I don't want to die she gra- she grabs herself right before she passes out into the into the fountain and you can tell for that moment she's just Didi death has left her so that you know she can so that yeah. she can be purely purely human and it's a it's 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 a very human moment so I like that um I like that it says something about humanity even in the unknown you know she's basically a god but it's very human god yeah so she stands up and she holds her hands straight out in this cross shape and she says no please i and that's her last words before she falls over backwards into Mm -hmm. the fountain um and and has died which uh as you said like it's it's a very biblical, very, very, very biblical moment uh for (laughs) her. Eloi Eloi whatever yeah uh as a deity that's about to die like the the deity part has to leave like he like uh you know the bible christ has to be cut off and allowed to die yeah. uh, mm-hmm. basically and then right because if she was immortal she wouldn't die <laughs> yeah <laughs> right yeah so uh so i, I like you, know, you say you like you kind of see her becoming more human as the mm-hmm. day progresses what do you think there's obviously this uh, this trend that you see in the story or this repeated theme in the story. And I've only read this once. So I want to know you as someone who, who's read it more. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea of paying, like it's called the high cost of living throughout. Mm-hmm. She doesn't pay for stuff, but she's also saying everyone pays in the end. Uh, mm-hmm. We see her die. And and uh, when uh, what's it? It's not mystery in this one. It's uh, the Aramite. something. I can't remember. The Aramite. Aramite. <laughs> um, he says... Um, give me the pennies. That's the cost of the life, and he puts the pennies on mm-hmm. her eyes. So, have you been able to make out what the idea of of cost and payment is? That's <laughs> clearly, something that attention is being drawn to repeatedly. Yeah, I there's... just didn't, wasn't able to fully connect all the threads. <laughs> so there's there's so many. You know, I'll call them metaphors, but they're they're not exactly explained metaphors. I think I think he wants you 
to realize, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's a cost to everything. She's got all the power in the universe. But then the one thing that's most important to her, the symbol of her power, the Ankh, which she just, you know, it's the last thing she does before they go to the fountain. She, um, her Ankh was stolen by the air mite. So she's like, I've got to get a new one. So she goes to get one and Sexton says, just give it to you. You're just going to do it anyway. And the, the street salesman's like, uh, no, not doing that. And she's like, all right, I'll give you 10 bucks. And so, <laughs> so she buys it because because everyone pays for something and you know no matter how charmed your life is i think at some point you know uh, sexton needs to realize from Dee Dee that yeah it might seem like she has every advantage in the world but there's a cost to everything there's a cost to um to life and for Dee, Dee who's had this charmed life for exactly 24 hours the cost is you know, she's got to burn out at the end. She's a God that has to die. That is the, that is the cost of her life. And like that $10 is just a metaphor for, you know, nothing's free in the end. And then she's, she's explicitly got $10 and two cents. She's got these two cents so that you can do the, you know, the coins on the eyes, which is a classic death, mo death motif that the, um, um, from lots of, of real life religions and, and mythologies, as opposed to, Gaiman's made up one where, you know, you put a coin on the, on the, on the eyes of the dead and the Aramite does that. And then when she shows up in the land of the dead, death removes those coins. So the cost of dying is apparently two cents. So there's, he's trying to make this, you know, this sort of weird metaphor, metaphysical statement, which is the kind of things that in comics, the only two people, well, three people who do this are him maybe Alan Moore and Grant Morrison and you never, and no one ever understands any of what they're doing entirely. Um, but I, but I think it's sort of, it's sort of, it's very Neil Gaiman. <laughs> it's a very Neil Gaiman kind of thing to do. And I think he's really just trying to say nothing's free in life, even if it appears to be to other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like we said, like the, uh, no, even if it appears because Sexton like over, you know, over and over is like, you know, why don't you pay for anything? And she just keeps insisting mm -hmm. no, everyone, everyone pays. <laughs> well, I think Sexton thinks uh, that everybody's life is charmed like that. I, I think, like you said, Sexton's a uh, uh, but not his. Right. right. Everybody else. Like, yeah. he, I don't think he he doesn't he doesn't realize to him. Dee, Dee is just this happy person. He doesn't know that her even if you ignore that she's death, he doesn't know that her family died. And then once he finds out. Oh, mm -hmm. well, that's sad. You know, there, that, there's a cost to that. There's this family that is gone and has left this 16 year old girl alone. So that's one cost. He doesn't, he doesn't recognize in the very, very obvious, look, I'm telling you not to kill yourself. The girl with gloves on her hands at, at the club, you know, she's like, oh, let me tell you a story about a friend of mine who tried to kill herself and slashed open her arms. He doesn't recognize that to this. This is just this beautiful girl who's got a great life. And she's telling you, no, no, I'm sad about things, too. I was abused. I've had a horrible life. You know, there, there's there's costs that you don't necessarily recognize. And yeah, you only see your own costs. So maybe maybe, maybe you know, the world's a lot harder than you think. And, you know, so keep trying. That's what you're supposed to do. So it's just double checking. Uh and, and I, I had this kind of ringing in my head, uh, but the the coins goes back to Greek mythology, right? Mm -hmm. To to pay for passage across the river Styx. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I went and looked, and you see Didi sits up 
in this kind of ethereal place with the mm-hmm. coin pennies on her eyes. And she takes them and you see her holding them in her hand. And there's that one panel where you see the flesh colored Dee Dee's hand touch the, the pale colored Dee Dee's hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the death death's hand. And so I think she's passing the coins over, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as her passage from, from life into death in that, in that single handshake. And that's uh, when you, uh, you, you do also see, um, in the next panel, you see just the flesh-colored hand is still there in the smoke all around. So the so the the living DD is is really disappearing, and we're left with just the image of the death version mm-hmm. uh, of this character. Yeah, there's more going on in those panels than I realized in my first read. <laughs> I will just acknowledge that. <laughs> it, to, it, to be clear, I've read this a dozen times, so <laughs> it is yes. it is a book that I've a, a perennial favorite of mine, and one that I've tried to teach on a couple of occasions. And it's odd because I don't know. Uh, it, um, every time I teach comics, I always at the end of the semester, I, I leave, um, I give them a choice between, you know, two texts that I think are relevant to whatever, whatever I'm teaching. And the three times I've taught a comics class, I've said this or something else. And each time they've chosen the other thing. And I don't know if in 2019, maybe it just doesn't resonate as much to 18 and 19 year olds as it clearly did in 1994. So 93. But like no one's, no, oh, I no one's re- yeah, it. I, I, uh, as someone who's again, like this is pre message board, pre comic book fan websites. Like all I knew, all I, all I had to find out what was going on uh, was things like the wizard magazine and death. The high cost of living was all over wizard mm-hmm. magazine. I still remember it mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, reading, reading it then it was, it was a very, very big deal in the comic book industry it was. Uh, and, and in the few places where I could find commentary at the time. What was amazing about it, not just this, but, you know, the entire Sandman mythos. And, you know, I've talked about this a lot with um, Wayne, the co-host on my show. We talk about this Um, going back to when I worked in the the store, there were comic book fans and there were Neil Gaiman fans who shopped at comic book stores. Um, Sandman had more to do with bringing people into comic book shops throughout the 90s than probably any other title. It brought more people in. Um, just to buy anything that he would write. The problem was most of them didn't latch on to other things. They'd go on and they'd buy whatever he, they'd come in and they'd buy whatever he was putting out. And then when Sandman ended, those people went away and they never came back. And it's kind of sad. It, it was it, There's people out there who have only read his work. Like that, that, yeah, I was a comic book fan. I read Sandman throughout the nineties. And then when Sandman ended and it's back, by the way, they're, they're doing more of it. Um, but I think, but when Sandman ended, they just sort of disappeared and went with them and, you know, read American gods, I guess, or, or, you know, like it, it was, um, it, it was odd. Like they, they didn't follow, they didn't follow the rest of the industry. Um, which is, which just made it, it, it was its own little world in, in this weird, weird way. Um, but I do think that it was influential beyond what the comic, I mean, well, it's 2019. So now comic book, comic books are mass culture, but at the time comic books were a very niche market and it was the one thing that, you know, it really did. I do think that these comics had a direct result on the goth movement, the style of dress that people had, um, throughout that time period. Um, everything from the classic I'm dressed like Dee Dee death look to um, if you if you ever look at the way Delirium, her little sister, is dressed, you'll see. Oh, yeah, I've seen someone in that outfit, too. <laughs> you know, it, it, it is, there's a very definite look to um, to people that was clearly inspired by the artwork of the of 
this book and the surrounding mythology. And well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, obviously people like what they like and they're going in for Neil Gaiman, but <laughs> Neil Gaiman style storytelling with like all these minor interconnections, mm-hmm. you can see his influence as a oh, leader yeah. of Marvel comics of the 60s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. that is what Marvel comics was absolutely doing uh, with, with dozens of creators and dozens of artists that were involved, but editors who were trying to m- ensure that things lined up at a certain point, like you noted earlier, they, they gave up and just kind of said, okay, Wolverine's everywhere. But for, <laughs> for a good long while, when Neil Gaiman would have been, you know, as a formative reader, like developing his own storytelling aesthetic, I think based on what he was reading, uh, like they made a big deal of Wolverine missing from three issues of the X-Men. So he could go up here in a Wolverine miniseries <laughs> over there. And they're going to explain, uh, you know, every, how everything interconnects and how each character is where they are. Um, now by the nineties, that was kind of thrown out the window. I think is, <laughs> is when you can kind of say they just, yeah, we're saying, done. <laughs> okay. Characters are uh, whatever's printing money for us. We're putting on the cover of, the, of this issue. <laughs> you know, this character shows up here. Um, but he's, he's not telling superhero stories, no. but he is, uh, influenced by the Marvel storytelling style of the sixties mm-hmm. in the stories that he does tell with Sandman and also in his novels too, I think. Yeah, well, Sandman, the original, the original Sandman series um, happened because DC approached them, him about rebooting a classic character that they had, Wesley Dodds, the Golden Age Sandman. And they're like, OK, we'd like Who you or like a, a gas mask yes. and a trench coat, right? Like yes. the World War Two era gas mask. And he's like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So he makes a story and Dodds does appear in Sandman comic books a couple of times. <laughs> um, but it's very, it, 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 a couple times, but it, it it's not about him. Like basically, um, basically Neil's version of the Dodds myth, and he actually did eventually write a different story about Dodds. They they brought back a classic Sandman comic that sort of ran concurrently for a bit. But is it that the one with Guy Davis? I don't remember. The art? <laughs> I don't remember. I think it is because yeah. my favorite. I, I own an original sketch of Sandman by Guy Davis, and it's that Golden Age Sandman. Mm-hmm. I'm looking up. Yes, it's Sandman Mystery Theater. Yes, and it's, uh, and you find out basically. Yeah, yeah, he was inspired by Dream all along. Okay, moving on. Yeah, like that was that was the connection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he had a dream about this guy and was inspired to be a hero, and that's the connection. And 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 it's very much Neil has this this mythology that he wants to tell that goes throughout Sandman. It's also, it's not clear 100% whether or not the, the, the vertigo endless stories take place in the DC universe or not, which is early on it. The first couple of issues, it seems like they do. And towards the end, you have a couple of issues where I don't want to spoil things for anybody who does want to go out and read Sandman. Cause it, it is technically very good. It's just not my favorite thing. So if, if you're into weird you know, ethereal, mystical storytelling. You should go out and read the entire 75 issue run. They're available as trade paperbacks. You can, you can, you can find them. Um, there are points where you'll see a Batman or a Superman, but it is very much not a superhero story. Now, around the same time, death was a very popular character. So throughout the nineties, she would appear in other people's books because people were like, Oh, people love that Sandman. I'm going to have death here. But there's very little. Con- Neil Gaiman just did not care. <laughs> he, he he was not yeah. concerned with trying to keep up with Batman and have Batman interrupt his story. <laughs> so so it's not that kind of story. It is very much a um, I'm trying to make art here. I'm not you know, maybe it's connected to the DC universe. Maybe it's not. It does not matter. Ninety nine percent of the time. Yeah. And I think that's um, 
even even within superhero stories, I think there's been the move to like having the creators to say, I'm telling this story and it can kind of connect, but I'm not going to, you know, worry about, you know, uh, uh, one panel in Batman number 372 <laughs> that would contradict the story that I want to tell right now. <laughs> right. And and it doesn't now, but he, but he would, you know, he'd sooner die than contradict any of his own mythology. Everything that he writes for himself. Yes. It's airtight. <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't care what Danny O'Neill did, but he absolutely cares about everything that he's done, which is, you know, you know, there's, there's a little bit of ego in there maybe, but also, he's brilliant at it so you know um even though well and also he has done uh he's done batman stories he's done marvel stories Mm -hmm. uh you know so he he has you know played in the superhero sandbox yes uh you know explicitly not just in terms of tonal storytelling yeah he wrote miracle man which is brilliant and everybody should be miracle man (laughs) Mm -hmm. so all right well any final thoughts on death the high cost of living map go read it (laughs) <laughs> this is an absolute must read. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, it, it's weird because, you know, your, your show's always odd because for me, every time you do an episode of something that I want to read, but I haven't yet, I'm like, oh, I'm skipping that this week because I and then I'll go back to it after I've read the book because <laughs> I, you know, because I because I want to do it um, with a few exceptions where you've had, you know, you've had a couple episodes where I'm like, oh, maybe I do want to read that after all. Um <laughs> But but even though we've spoiled the entire book for you, it doesn't take that long. It's in your library. Go check this out and read this book. It is so good. It is um, it is to me. And again, I've not read American Gods. I'm sorry. But to me, this is the best thing that he's ever re- written, um, maybe tied with a short story that I I personally enjoy, but I get why it's too weird for other people called how to talk to girls at parties, which is a very odd Neil Gaiman short story, but um, all, that has, there's a short story version and a comic book version, both of which I have, but those are my two favorite things of his that he's, that he's written. And this is probably the best. It is very tight. It is very digestible and understandable. It'll take you an hour. You'll love yourself when you're done. Oh, I, I, I'd say probably even even less. I mean, I think you can read it for an hour. But yeah. if you're just want to say, like, I, I, this is only to read list, you can knock it out in a half hour, and there'll still be parts of it that are going to be lingering in your mind. I, I like <laughs> you know, I like to look later. at the pictures for a long time. I like to sit there and oh, this is there's so much yeah. going on, you know. So, oh, I was just flipping through, and there's a few like the way uh, Chris Bucklow tra- draws Mad Hetty. I'm like, oh, I can see the Generation X Chris Bucklow here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, it's there, but, but just in that heady, not not in but not in the others. But he's doing you know, something different too. He's he is very definitely, yeah. you know, changing his regular, even his regular style for 1993 is not exactly this. He's made something special for the mm-hmm. for this comic. Yeah, I think this is the third Neil Gaiman text we've done. Oh no, it's the fourth because we did uh, Graveyard Book, we did Ocean at the End of the Lane, and we did Marvel 1602, mm. uh, which are all Neil Gaiman texts mm-hmm. um, in the past. Uh, and uh, I, I, so I, I, I've read quite a bit of Neil Gaiman, and I'm surprised that I never got to this one, but it, it was so rewarding to to actually read it. And so I, I second your your counsel to just <laughs> just go read it. Just go pick it up at your local library. It's worth this it. is one of those texts that I'm pretty sure will be in most local libraries at this <laughs> point. And it's, you know, and and I, I mean, I, I own three copies of it, plus the digital version, so which is what I'm looking at while we're while we're while we're doing this. And it, it, it's just 
it's got a it's got an odd charm about it even in the i mean we said it's a it's a it's sort of a formulaic story in that it's one that's been told before um it, it is death takes a holiday it's a very basic concept um which is sort of like you know he tells you the plot of it Dee explains the plot the first time you meet her she's like oh yeah i'm death i take one day to live as a mortal every hundred years let's roll with this and sexton's like yep I think you're crazy, but I'm on board. And that's like, it's a very, it's explained basically in one page. And the rest of the story is just how can these characters embody this very basic concept? It is just a story of charm. Yeah. And, and one of the most charming things is this, uh, this, uh, outward expression of gothness from (laughs) death and her sheer joy at eating a hot dog, uh, and, and looking at the city and, and, you know, just, just seeing, seeing this world. Uh, around her and like she even asks like there's something about this hot dog is it the chemical aftertaste that humans love because <laughs> i'm loving it right now <laughs> you only get to you only get to eat once every hundred years you know you got to enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> all right well i think that is going to wrap up this episode thank you listeners for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows you can go to duelinggenre.com also please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review that really helps us out we'd like to thank nick english who designed our logo and scott tofty who composed our theme music if you enjoyed this episode you might want to go check out episode number 14 when we talked about the graveyard book or episode number 148 uh, when we talked about jonathan strange and mr norrell it's a it's not a Neil Gaiman story, but it might as well be. <laughs> it, uh, it feels aesthetically uh, of a type with with this kind of story. Uh, you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at protagonistpod or at Jadorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Dismit. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Now, Mav, you have a podcast. Do you want to yeah. pitch, uh, pitch that to our listeners real quick? I am one of four hosts. Uh, you know, well, you've, you've been on the show, so you know all of them. But um, you've, you've We've had one of my co-hosts on the show as well, Hannah, um, but I am one of four hosts of the Vox Popcast, and we are a we are a weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. I said at the beginning of every episode, so um, that is um, <laughs> it is um, not exactly like this show. We have a we have a pop culture topic that we discuss every week, and we have a roundtable of some set of our four of our four co-hosts and then some guests that we we take some topic and we break it down and we sort of try and you know analyze it but it's not necessarily a story it might be a story like we did today or it might be you know we might just sort of say we're going to talk about the idea of continuity today or we're going to talk about um (laughs) the, the one we're recording tomorrow as we record this is we are going to talk about the idea of etiquette of etiquette on the internet you know the, the, so so we oh. so, so we sort of find you know find academic um topics that we can discuss you know, each of us is uh you know we've got um i study comics it's my area of expertise um and we've got someone who studies video games um hannah who you've had on is is uh, a victorian scholar so we you know we we bring our various fields of expertise towards some topic and we sort of break it down and have fun with it uh, yeah, and um, I, you, I love how eclectic your <laughs> your episodes are um, from week to week. And sometimes you do something like I was on as a guest once where it was, we're going to build a college syllabus if you were doing like a 201 level course on comics where everyone's done 101. So they know their mouse, so they know their mm-hmm. watchmen. But now what? What do we what? have to do uh, to 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 teach, uh, you know, the these people who want to know a little bit more about comics? And uh, there, there's just this... Um, 
delightful like what's next in the in the podcast feed uh with your your podcast yeah we're about to record another one like that with your brother's going to be on one your brother john's going to be on one where we're going to do one which is a a syllabus episode but instead of comics we're going to do what would you do if you were teaching a 200 level course on monsters any monster (laughs) what are what are the monster books that you should do and so so we like to have fun with it we also play a box office game like you guys do (laughs) which i you know wholeheartedly admit that i just completely just stole from you (laughs) all right well thank you again for downloading us listeners and thank you mav for joining us on this episode we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story so long Kneel, kneel down here so I can read my, closer to my thing. Andrew, uh-huh. cut that out.